Well, hello there, Fright fans. Welcome back. Tess's long night with Lena Severant has officially come to a close, and now it's time to see what Park Heights looks like in the light of day. Probably still creepy, considering how the night ended at Crazy's. But first, this word from our sponsor. Hello. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening, and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Well, now, you remember Devin from our last episode? Tessa's mom's old boyfriend? Well, it's time to meet Tessa's mom. Ooh boy. I'm your host, Pun Bandu, and this is Dark Heights, Episode 4. Tess. Stillness can be unbearable, silence terrifying. A bright moon had risen over the woods, nothing moved. A stand of slender trees swept down the slope ahead of me, thin black columns edged in vertical lines of white moonlight. Somewhere close to me, the man with the knife, the man in the bomber jacket, waited. I had run from him. I had bolted, sprinting flat out, my ankle twisting, feet tripping over uneven ground. I scrambled over moss-grown deadfall. I didn't look back. I knew he would be following. I knew he would overtake me. Was that why he wanted me to run? So he could hunt me? Like prey? Isn't that what this was all about? Power? Savoring the fear of the hunted? Feeling the power of claiming a life? I was running. There was a deeper darkness in front of me, and all at once I lost my footing, the ground falling away. I covered my face with my arms and tumbled down through a thickness of scrub and brush that cut at me everywhere, branches like whips, the barbed tips of twigs as sharp as wire. Then I went over a ledge of rock, dropped straight down, into the water, into a trickling creek. I landed on my feet and then pitched forward into the freezing stream. And I picked myself up, and I ran. The dark pines in the woods above had given over to the tall, graceful trees. There was less undergrowth here. I could maybe make it to the road, to the fence that surrounded the property of arson. Except did this slope lead down to the edge of the property? Was it the right direction? What if he was already down there, ahead of me? I stopped running. I threw my arms around one of the slim trees, held on tight to it. 
made myself still, listened. Just my own breathing, my heartbeat. Clouds drew back from the moon, and the shapes of the trees glowed soft silver white as if lit from within. It was beautiful. I wouldn't forget it. I held my breath, listening for him. There was no sound at all. Now, in the car, parked at the gas station in the middle of nowhere, I put the heat on full blast and turned the dial on the radio between loud static and the quieter hisses of dead-tuned nothing. On the windshield, the rain diminishes, but I'm soaked and shivering, and who knows how long the car will run. The empty tank red light's been on all night. I had turned the headlights off. Does that save gas? I don't know. Except all this darkness has started to feel like it's teeming with threats hidden just out of sight. I can see the closed gas station, but the illumination from the streetlight at the highway seems to stop like it hits something right at the edge of the building. I know there's nothing around that corner, out in the back of the place, but it feels like anything could be there, beyond the light. My teeth are chattering again. Wait, did something move? I flick the headlights on. I blink and see Lina standing there. I blink, and she's gone. What the hell was that? How could Lina be there? If this was one of my mother's horror movies, I would probably get out of the car and walk around to the back of the closed gas station to figure out if I really did just see Lina there, or something else, someone else. It's almost hard not to do it, like it's expected of me. My hand goes to the door handle. No. I'm not going anywhere, at least while the car is running, while there's heat. I look over to my right. Lina is standing there. The palm of her hand slaps onto the passenger side window. I scream. My eyes are closed. Can't open them. I'm seeing things. I'm scaring myself. I open my eyes, and no one is there. Not Lina, not anyone. I really am making myself crazy, aren't I? But why do I keep seeing these visions of Lina? It must be some kind of aftershock of what happened earlier, my mind trying to deal with it, process all of it. I see headlights now. There's a car on the highway. Please, God, let it be Zack. The car slows down and turns into the gas station parking lot. When I got home that night after leaving Arson, having met Lina's father and brother, it was getting late. My mother was already asleep. Or at least, I hoped she was. I made sure I was quiet as I came into the house. This was our old home in Park Heights, the house my mother had bought with the last of her money, what was left after her early retirement from acting, after her many hospitalizations over the years. It was a quaint, modest house. Everything in it broke down all the time, which had prompted us to work hard to befriend our handyman neighbor, and often, to me, the rooms felt too small even for the two of us. Our cramped and cluttered living space was usually a mess. Dirty dishes in the sink for days, untouched leftovers going bad in the fridge, dust bunnies multiplying underneath the couch. I was starving, thinking about making a quick stir-fry, but I stopped outside my mother's room and listened for a few moments. It was hardly a sound at all, but I could hear her crying softly in her room, I took in a deep breath and sighed it out. She wouldn't want me to come in. Sometimes I did, regardless. I just couldn't let her be alone in there, crying all night. 
but she reacted badly to it every time I tried to help. She didn't want me to see her like that, or that's what she said anyway. I just didn't want her to suffer. Except that night, I turned away from the door of her room and went into the kitchen. It's not something I was proud of. Every time I left her alone like that, I felt what a daughter always feels when her mother's not well and there's little that can be done to help. I couldn't avoid that sharp pang of guilt, but I was hungry and tired, and even more than that, my mind was processing all that had happened earlier. Lina fighting with Dylan at the side of the road while Zack looked on, then being at Arson, a place that was more or less a local legend. Lina's father, and Will. What Will said as I walked down the steps to my car. In the morning, my mother was up before me, bearing no outward traces of a rough night. Her famous hair was brushed and tied into a long ponytail. Her makeup looked great. She had made us a pot of coffee. She was sitting on a tall chair pulled up to the island in the kitchen. Her oblong plastic medication box, the snap lid flipped open, sat on the counter next to her iPad, where she was busy scrolling through Facebook. Were you out on a big date or something? She said. I shrugged my shoulders, sluggish in the early hour, pawing at the coffee mugs in the cupboard. My mother made the sound that she makes when one of her tics takes over. A smacking of the lips, a kissing of the teeth. I remember when she had started doing it. I thought she had been judging me all the time, expressing her disapproval. After one of her long-term stays in an institution, one of her doctors explained that the tick was a presented symptom, a visible sign of her struggle for control over the part of her that was at war with the rest of her. You didn't look like you were dressed nice enough to be out on a date last night, that's for sure, my mother said. Were you watching me from the window when I came in? She made her tick sounds again. Yes. Mom, you should take your vitamins. We used that euphemism for her medication. It sometimes seemed to amuse her. She popped three pills into her mouth, one by one, swallowed each one down without water, then sipped some coffee. The medication had made her into a different woman from what she had once been. Her face had filled out with a heaviness beneath the eyes. Her overall weight gain had become permanent. But she was even keeled when she was taking her vitamins. She was better. I talked to Mona last night, she said. This was Mona Wrightson, who owned the green machine, my boss. She thinks you're the best thing that's ever happened to Park Heights. All the customers love you. That's nice, I said absently. I told her you're not staying there forever. I fixed her with a glare. Why would you say that to her? Because it's true. It's not a job for someone like you, someone talented like you are. I shook my head. It's good working there. It's all right. You shouldn't have said anything. She went on as if she hadn't heard me. You'll go back to L.A. I know you will. You had some roadblocks when you were there last year, but you'll go back and it'll be better. I used her own strategy of pretending not to hear what was said in order to steer the conversation in a different direction. Are you going to the wellness center today? I should think so, she said stiffly. I saw Devin Hanlon last night. I didn't tell her where I saw him. He said he hadn't seen you at the center for a while. I signed up for a new program. Oh yeah? 
What is it? It's nothing special. Is it like yoga or meditation or a support group or... My mother didn't answer. I didn't think much about it at the time, but I should have taken her silence on the subject as an indication that something wasn't quite right. I should have pressed her harder about it. Instead, I glanced at the clock on the stove and saw I was pushing it to get to my green machine shift on time. I gotta get a move on, Mom, I said. Say hi to Mona for me, she called after me as I left the house. My workday passed quickly. What I thought most about as I drove around Park Heights was the fact that I'd promised Lina we would get drunk together, and since we were both under 21, this was slightly problematic. However, as I pulled the station wagon up to Kevin Cho's mom's house, I knew what the plan would be. I had always liked Kevin's mom. I know she came across to many people, my own mother included, as severe and maybe even snobbish, but over the years I'd known Kevin, I'd come to understand and appreciate his mom for who she was. Unsmiling, yes, and knife-edge sharp, but generous and kind, too. Kevin lived behind his mom's house in a single-room loft above the garage. He'd been in there since his dad had died when Kevin was a sophomore in high school. Both of us had been the subjects of some bullying at school that year, for different reasons, and we'd gravitated toward a friendship that centered, at first, on our shared dislike of everyone else around us. But we had other things in common, too. Kevin was an only child, like me, and then neither of us had a dad. For me, the bullying eventually subsided. I didn't react to it much, and I think the girls who'd been after me lost interest in it. But for Kevin... I'm not sure it ever stopped. I knew he'd be home because it was around 11 in the morning and there was no way he was awake yet. Besides, his mom always knew if he was there or not, and when I said I was going to talk to Kevin, she handed me a duffel bag of clean, folded laundry to give to him. I went up the rickety, swaying staircase attached to the side of the garage and knocked on the screen door to his room, or his apartment, or whatever it was. I waited and knocked again. Kevin, it's Tess, I shouted. If you don't wake up and talk to me, I'm going to tell your mom about the party we had in her house senior year when she was in China. I heard him stirring within, then stomping up to the door. His bedhead was spectacular, a lopsided hair mountain with a flattened, tufted peak. I tossed the bag of laundry past him into his loft. Kevin wiped his glasses on his gross-looking, once-white t-shirt before putting them on. He said, Give me a reason not to push you down the stairs right now. You smell terrible. I really just want to go back to bed, Tess. Well, I need you. I'm supposed to get drunk with Lina Severand tonight. He looked blankly at me. Not sure you heard me. Lina Severand. I gestured vaguely north uphill, in the direction of Arson. As in the billionaire Severins who live up there, on top of the town. He yawned. I still don't understand why you're here right now. We're going to come drink with you, and I wanted to let you know. What? Tonight, after my shift, I'm going to bring Lina here. Kevin had obtained a fake ID a long time ago, and he was absolutely my go-to guy for booze. I'll pay you back, of course, but you should get some beer, some wine, some rum. Of course, I can get all that for you, he said. 
But why don't you just pick it up here and go somewhere else? You should meet Lena. She's interesting. I really don't want to. She's very cute. So are you, he said, but I'm immune. You got me there. Face it, Tess, you've got no leverage. He was grinning. Fine, I said. I'm calling in a zero hour. This was our code, Kevin's and mine, for a favor that was impossible for the other to deny, a request whose fulfillment could not be withheld. Zero hour was a sacred pact we had made with each other in sophomore year, when both of us had gone through some rough things and needed to be able to ask for help. Kevin sighed deeply. Then he said, in a tiny voice, France is coming over later. I grinned. Lena will love France. Everyone loves France. Well, he is the most beautiful man alive. I turned and headed down the stairs. Flecks of peeling white paint came off on my fingertips from the mold-soft wooden railing. At the bottom of the stairs, I turned back and looked up. Kevin was glaring at me as if he hoped this was all a dream. Thanks, Kevin, I called to him. Love you. Fuck you too, he said, and sighed, finally resigning himself to my plans for his night. And you'd better clean up your man cave a little, I added. Don't want Lena to think the outside world is as grubby as she thinks it is. There's a lot about that night. Drinking with Lena at Kevin Cho's loft above his mom's garage that I don't remember. After my shift, I went to Crazy's, got into a booth, ordered a jumbo smoothie. It wasn't much of a wait before a black Mercedes with tinted windows pulled up out front, and sure enough, it was Lina who came out of the back seat, dressed like a rock and roll princess in tight black leather pants, platform boots, a lacy blouse that looked deliberately ripped to reveal more white skin, her clavicles stood out, exposed, and finally, a stone-washed jean jacket over top of it all. I'm so excited, she said breathlessly as she slid into the booth across from me. Your dad let you out, I said. Actually, it's funny. After what Devin Hanlon said about you, Marius was completely okay with this. And we even talked about me being out with Dylan and Zach. I wasn't in too much trouble after all. I looked her over a little more closely. Did you dye your hair? She grinned. I went blonder. More fun, etc. We shared a plate of cheeseless nachos at Crazy's, then I drove us to Kevin's. He was nervous at first, shy in front of Lina, which she immediately liked. As the night went on, and as Lina became louder and more daring with each drink, Kevin took on the role of her pet or plaything. Not in a sexual way, more like he helplessly and meekly fulfilled her every wish. Change the music, play that song again, pour me a drink, sit down next to me and rub my feet. To the point, I recall, that she wanted him to put on different clothes and was helping him pick out something that actually matched. I made her sit back down on his broken, sagging couch and leave him alone. Kevin was an audio engineer or at least he'd taken some classes in recording arts at LMU before dropping out. He'd been an AV kid at Pally, making short films at lunch hour and recording ambient sounds with boom mics while other students smoked and skateboarded and lay in the sun on the grass by the parking lot. 
I think he was already some kind of technical genius by the time we graduated. I'm sure he left LMU's program out of boredom. He did a lot of work for bands in L.A., especially the band that France was in, which was called White Mask. Lina asked Kevin to play some songs from the band, and he fired up their one and only album on his laptop. Just as the deep, slow, heavy chords of the doom metal exploded out of Kevin's excellent surround sound system, rattling the windows and vibrating our glasses of rum and coke where they sat on the wooden plank coffee table, not only France himself, but the whole band, White Mask, came through the door into the loft, as if they had been summoned by their music. France was the lead singer, though he screamed more than sang. He had been one of Kevin's best friends since he had moved to the U.S. from Lagos, Nigeria in our junior year. France was tall and lithe, graceful, magnetic. As I had said to Kevin before, a profoundly beautiful human being. I found it kind of funny that the rest of the band was made up of three very deeply bearded white guys who looked, to me, completely interchangeable. Damon, the lead guitarist, Jay, the bass player, Mike Q, the drummer. Oh my God, no, France said as he came through the door. In the White Mask song that was playing, his voice had risen from a snarl to a tortured shout before descending into a wail of despair. He said to the room, this has to be stopped, and went immediately to the desk where Kevin's laptop sat open. In a moment, Abba's song Waterloo replaced the noise dirge of White Mask, followed by boos and catcalls from everyone else who was there. I watched Lina stare at France with an open mouth, stunned silent for once, as he flung his jacket onto Kevin's bed and began dancing wildly to Abba. I had gone to see White Mask once in LA, though the music wasn't really to my taste. It was simultaneously too aggressive for me and too depressing. There was no doubt in my mind that Franz Idaemi was a superstar in the making. It was impossible not to watch him. He moved with a sinister grace, and when he took hold of the stand and screamed into the mic, it was a thrilling, primal sound that induced extreme reactions. People at the club stood there crying, or sat down, or covered their faces. What was strange about France was that in high school, he had been ordinary to the point of being invisible. Kevin never seemed to hang out with both of us at the same time, and so I barely noticed that France was there in our classes together. He certainly wasn't, at that time, the beautiful human specimen that he had since become. It was as if, sometime after graduation, he'd made a deal for fame and fortune with the devil. The band had arrived at Kevin's. After that, the details are hazy. We all drank. Lena was a hit. She made us all listen to White Mask's album over and over until my ears were ringing. It was like she had been prefabricated to become a groupie for the band. Not France. He never really acknowledged she was there. But the other guys, who couldn't believe their luck, those quiet, bearded weirdos. They were closing in on her by the end of the night, like circling sharks in the rum and coke bloodied water, where she was thrashing for attention. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And so I said goodnight to all, took hold of Lena, and we left. We walked to Crazy's. Kevin's mom's house wasn't far, a half-hour walk at the most. I thought a walk might sober us up a little bit, and food would be good. We needed to soak up the evening's overdose of alcohol. Crazy's was busy for how late it was. The diner was open 24 hours, which I'd always thought was strange for our little town, but there always seemed to be someone there. After all, it was an ideal place for friends to sit in a booth all night, nursing their depression, complaining about the terrible world we live in. God knows Kevin and I had observed a few late nights turn into early mornings at Crazy's. We sat down and ordered some tofu club sandwiches right away. I was hoping to tamp down the reeling and tilting that was taking place around my head with a few cups of coffee, so I wasn't paying much attention to my surroundings. But Lina seemed, for some reason, to be hyper-aware of what was going on around her. That guy was staring at you when we came in, she said to me in a low voice. That guy right there, by the entrance. I was facing the front door of the diner, so I could see the man Lina was talking about. He turned slightly toward us as I was staring at him, as if he could feel my gaze landing on the back of his head. I saw that he wore glasses with round lenses, like John Lennon's glasses. His bomber jacket was zipped all the way up, which I thought was strange for someone sitting in a diner, let alone how warm it was that night. I couldn't have known who he was, the man in the bomber jacket. I didn't know. The fundraiser party at Arson hadn't happened yet. Then I saw Zach. Actually, I saw Zach's date first. She was a tall, tanned blonde girl in a form-fitting mini dress that made it nearly impossible for her to slide out of the booth where she sat with Zach. She went past Lina and me with an empty water glass, rudely shoving it at Aaron, who was the only waitress on at Crazy's that night, and sashaying back past us with a full glass. I was wondering how her long legs actually fit in under the narrow tables at the booths. Then I saw that across from her, Zach was looking right at me. Lina turned around and saw him too. She spun back to face me. I think Zach likes you, she said. What? Come on, I said. He's out with that supermodel. She doesn't matter. Then Lina smiled crookedly. You kind of have a thing for him, too, don't you? I didn't even know he existed before yesterday, so how could I have a thing for him? And he's in high school. I thought about her brother, Will, warning me about Zach. You can't trust him, he'd said. But I didn't mention this to Lina. Well, let me say this much, Lina began with drunken exaggeration. The only thing I know for sure is... She blinked a few times. I forgot. And you know what? 
I'm going to the bathroom. I am never coming back. She left the booth just like that, beginning a slow and unsteady procession to the bathrooms at the back of Crazy's. I sat on my own for a few minutes. I realized that Lina might need some help in the bathroom, and I was deciding whether to go in there after her or not. Probably she would be okay, but it was kind of my responsibility to make sure, wasn't it? Zach got up from his booth. He went over to the vintage jukebox next to the entrance, which was always well-stocked with current, offbeat, and alternative tunes. He put in a few quarters, pressed the buttons, and a song began to play. What are you doing? I said to him, because Zach had sat down in my booth, across from me, where Lina had just been sitting. I wanted to say hello. He shrugged, untroubled, brushing some of his long hair out of his eyes. The coruscating synth of the dream pop Zach had chosen on the jukebox played in the background, a melancholy reverie. Won't your leggy friend be jealous? He glanced over at the girl. Her eyes were locked onto her smartphone, thumb and fingers working the surface. Her? That's my sister. I smiled and tried to cover it with one hand. I didn't want to encourage Zach, but I did like him. Lina was right. Like hell she is, I said. He shrugged again. I couldn't tell if the nonchalant act he seemed to have perfected was born of smart aleck confidence or a genuine, uncaring coolness. She's not really into me, I'm afraid to say. I'm striking out. And I'm heartbroken. I really was looking forward to figuring out why all her friends are bitches who think they're better looking than she is. Or was it the other way around? You know, I can't even keep it straight now. I'm sure you're out with her because you were hoping to have some great conversations. People can surprise you. Usually in a bad way, I find. His smile wavered. That's pessimistic, but true. He suddenly looked straight up, making me follow his gaze to the lights above us. I thought a bulb just went out, he said. It got so dark for a second there. I didn't make you come over here and sit down. No, he said. I'm only joking. I like it, in fact. You're about a billion times more real than most people I've talked to lately. He glanced over my shoulder. Who's Lina with back there? I twisted around. Lina was seated at a booth with an older-looking black man who wore an old-fashioned hat, and it looked like they were playing cards. Or, no, he was reading tarot cards for her. I have no idea what's going on there, I said. You can't take Lina anywhere, Zack said flatly. She just gets into trouble. Weren't you friends with her brother? I found myself saying. He looked at me in surprise. I was, yeah. We were best friends. We grew up together. Zack looked down at the table. His family has done a lot for me, but I don't know what happened. Will just stopped reciprocating our friendship. Suddenly, it was over. Maybe he thought it was weird you were on some kind of double-team date with his sister, I said with some venom. Zack unconcernedly considered my remark. He stretched out in the booth, put his arms behind his head. Will cut me off about a year ago. As for Dylan, he's my friend, but he's an idiot. Just then, I realized that Lina and Will had told me different things about Dylan. 
Lina said that Dylan goes to school with you guys, I said. He does, yeah. But Will told me that he doesn't know Dylan at all. Zach made a face. See, that's just it. It's like Will disconnected himself from reality. Of course he knows Dylan. He thought about this. They're not close or anything, I guess. Come to think of it, I'm not sure they've ever really spoken to each other, but you'd think Will would at least know that Dylan exists. I didn't start spending time with Dylan until after Will hit reset on our friendship. And don't ask me how Dylan got in touch with Lina. I would have tried to stop that. When I found out he was taking her out, I wanted to be there to make sure she was okay. I looked into his eyes. I saw you guys last night. I saw Dylan knock her down and then you were heading toward them. To make him calm down? What did you think I was going to do? Help him, like, rape her? I don't know what your intentions were. My intentions? He laughed, but there was bitterness in it. Will may have dropped me off his contact list, but he's still my friend. And Lina? I've known Lina all my life, too. You know, I thought I was meant to be with her for a long time. When I was 14, 15, I thought she was the love of my life. It was like I didn't even exist in the days between my visits to Will's house when I caught a glimpse of her. Will's beautiful sister disappearing down a hallway or coming down a ridiculous staircase. Zack had become intensely serious. His voice was quiet. I was haunted by her. I really was. I thought I would have done anything for her. But nothing worked out between us. And then I realized that maybe what I thought I loved in Lina was actually something else. Maybe what I really wanted was their life, their money, their privilege. I didn't grow up with any of that. I mean, it's only because of Will's father that I'm able to go to that school. But I experienced it, this other world of privilege, all the time through Will and Lina. Maybe what haunted me was my own selfishness. I look at Lina now, and I'm not sure what I see. There's walls and masks and who knows what else over top of whatever it is that's going on in there. He stopped himself, then smiled shyly. Wow, why did I tell you all of that? I should have just said that Lynn is like a sister to me, end of story. Seems like there's a few girls here tonight who are sisters to you. Zach tilted his head back a little and laughed. It was nice, a sincere, infectious laugh that made me smile. He said, you got me there. So, are you going to go back to your supermodel or what? Don't want to, he said. It would be pretty rude to just leave her there. She doesn't even know I'm gone. It was true. The girl was still texting or Snapchatting or posting selfies on Instagram. Zach said, I think she looks happier without me. She does. And you, he said, seem to know everything about me already. I don't even know your name. It's Tess, I said. So what's the next thing we're going to do together, Tess? I knew where this was going. What do you mean exactly? Well, I have to see you again. It's not fair that you know all there is to know about me, but I don't know anything about you. This has to be corrected. I hesitated. There was something between us. It was easy to see it. A spark. I felt it, and I'm sure he did too. I definitely found his openness and laid-back composure appealing. He was attractive too, even with that long hair, even if he was still in high school. I wasn't sure what he was seeing in me. 
I thought I had disconnected myself from that part of my life, from flirtation, romance, from sex, love. It made me nervous to feel what I felt. I wasn't sure if I wanted it or not. You want to get to know me better? I said, finally. Yeah, he said. I would love to. I laughed. Well, make some plans then. Take me out. Just remember that you asked for it. It's your funeral. I don't want to spoil anything, but pay attention to that wellness center Tess's mom mentioned. It might be important later. That house party got a little wild though, huh? Woo boy. Also, I love a horror story with a good romance storyline as well. You know, because uh, romances don't always go the way of rom-coms in horror stories, which I like. Just cuts through the schmelz. There's a lot of dark heights still ahead of us. And next time, the Realm regulars might just hear a familiar voice. Join us next time. Ciao for now. You're listening to Fear, Dark Heights, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Dark Heights is created and written by C.D. Miller, produced by Haley Wagreich, and executive produced by Molly Barton, starring Dion Graham, Julia Whalen, and Neil Helligers. Audio production, sound design, and editing by Amanda Rose Smith. Original music by Chris Miller. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Fear is produced by Mary Asadolahi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Pun Bandu. Audio editing by Corey Barton and Felicia Dominguez. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Fear by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.